0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: i'm afwa hirsch
0: i'm peter frankopan
1: and in our podcast legacy we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history
2: this season we're exploring the life of cleopatra
1: an iconic life full of romances sieges and tragedy but who was the real cleopatra
2: Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose.
1: Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+.
0: It's The Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host... And in today's episode, where we're talking about an island that is revealing so much information about Neanderthals in northwest Europe hundreds of thousands of years ago, I'm talking about Jersey. Because in Jersey, archaeologists to this day are conducting excavations at various sites and uncovering more really exciting archaeology That is highlighting a big Neanderthal presence here more than 100,000 years ago. And indeed, over many different generations, sites were used and then reused for different purposes. And the archaeology is showing that. To explain all about Jersey's amazing Ice Age archaeology, well, I was delighted to head down to Sussex a few weeks back to interview Dr Matt Pope from UCL's Institute of Archaeology, Matt, he is part of the team that is currently excavating one of the jewels in the crown of Jersey's Ice Age archaeology, the site of La Côte de Saint-Roulade. Well, what is that site? Well, we're going to hear all in today's episode. I really do hope you enjoy. And here's Matt.
3: Matt, it is
0: wonderful to have you on the podcast. It's
3: wonderful to have you
0: here. Yeah, and we're doing it in person too. So, absolutely the best of all options and we're doing it in your little shed too got all your work all around us early human stuff and your work recently has been focused on the island of jersey
3: and this is in many ways an ice age island Yeah, it's an island at the moment. You know, we're just leaving the Ice Age, really. If we're going into the Anthropocene, then we're leaving an era, the Pleistocene, which is the Ice Age, a period where the Earth has been getting cooler, sea levels changing all the time, a place like Jersey occasionally becoming an island. It is a point in the landscape at all times which is distinctive, which is contained, which has unique resources, which has unique topography... And so what a great unit to study when we're looking at early prehistory. And particularly
0: focusing on Neanderthals, I can't think of many other places in northwest Europe that you have such an incredible density of Neanderthal sites and also
3: incredible visual remains of the Neanderthals too. Yeah, it's a unique site in the region of Northwestern Europe for a number of reasons. There are other incredible sites telling us bits of the stories of Neanderthal people preserving maybe 5, 10, 20,000 years of Neanderthal history. But there really is nothing like it in this region to have an entire span of maybe up to 200,000 years of time preserved in a headland that's, you know, 50 meters by 60 meters in size. And it's a very dramatic point in the landscape as well. If you go and you see it, even today on your your own senses, the scale of it, the size of it, the right angles of the granite, it has a really strong power over the imagination. And it was obviously bringing back Neanderthal people again and again over a huge span of time through lots and lots of different environmental changes, lots of changes in sea level. And that's why we end up with such a great record in one place.
0: And you mentioned 200,000 years. So when are we talking with these
3: 200,000 years? Mm. So we're talking, and of course, we work within a system of global climatic change. Cold periods, which can last um, you know, as much as sort of 60 70,000 years where you're getting advance of the ice sheets. We generally call those glacials and then shorter periods of maybe 10, 15, maximum 20,000 years when temperatures are warmer and sea levels are higher. We're in what we call marine isotope stage one right now. This is a warm period. Sea level is high. We're going back to marine isotope stage seven, maybe marine isotope stage eight. This marine isotope stage seven is a a warm period and the sea level is high about 220,000 years ago. Right, and
0: when we're talking about Neanderthals at that time, if it's covering some 200,000 years, I'm guessing there are glacial periods in that time. So when we're envisaging Neanderthal occupation of Jersey, Is it not one linear straight line? Do we think that they're there, then they leave, then they go back, then they leave? And is that what we're kind of
3: thinking? Yeah, it's absolutely not a linear occupation. We've got over 13 different occupation levels at Lacotte. And some of them are in warm stages where the sea level is high and others going to cold stages. And some of the levels, it's so cold, no one is here at all. It's, it's so cold, no one is anywhere in northwest Europe. You might have arctic fox around, you might have arctic hare, that's about it. So we know this is a site that gets completely depopulated. In fact, the entire region gets depopulated. So then when above these cold stages, we find more occupation of Neanderthal people, we know people have come back in, they've moved back into the landscape, and they found Lakote again, and they re-established occupation there. Now, we've got at least four or five hiatuses where no one is there at LeCotte. So you've got like a repeating experiment. Let's see what the Neanderthal people do. Now they come back and rediscover this site, which is really exciting. Most of the time, they do remarkably similar things. It's not radical changes, but incrementally, these changes build up over time. And we need to think of each population as being a separate culture, a separate population, maybe with some genetic affinity to whoever came before, but actually re-establishing, working out the logic of the landscape, working out the logic of the site, and doing their thing. Logic of the landscape, logic of the site.
0: You mentioned Lacotte, we're gonna get there very, very soon, but first of all, this seems important to really stress. Mm. Jersey at that time, today we think of it as an island, Mm. big block of sea between that and mainland Mm. France and mainland Britain. I'm guessing it wasn't
3: an island back in the Neanderthal times. No, we think it finally became an island around 120,000 years ago. That's during a warm period, MIS-5, when sea level is high. And whatever permanent land bridge with continental France existed, it was cut off at that point. Prior to that, it was a peninsula. It was a peninsula of France extending out from Normandy into the English Channel. On one side, the river a, and on the other side the river Cien. So at that point Jersey is high ground but high ground at the end of a peninsula. Right. See, yeah. you're already you're starting to get an idea of its strategic value aren't you for anyone
0: looking at that site more than 100,000 years ago and therefore let's delve
3: into Lacotte. Mm. Matt what is Lacotte? Lacotte de Saint-Brelard is a headland on the southwest coast of Jersey It is a granite headland, which means it's incredibly resistant to erosion. And that's important because Mm -hmm. it means it stayed put, you know, in the soft coastlines of where I live, Sussex, up this end of the English Channel. The chalk just gets washed away by every high sea level that stayed there. But the sea has pounded it. If you look out to the southwest, from Jersey, it's a straight line to North Carolina, a huge fetch across the Atlantic. It gets big swells, it gets big storms, and so the granite headland has been pounded, and over hundreds of thousands of years, maybe initiating over a million years ago, a ravine system has been eroded out of this headland. Initially these would have been sea caves and the sea caves would have collapsed and we just have one remaining great big granite arch that looks like a flying buttress of a cathedral and that's all that remains of the cave system. But actually for most of the more recent history, the last couple of hundred thousand years, very little of it has been a cave and most of it has been an open ravine. The granite is straight sided and within that granite system, the sea gets in every time there is a high sea level during warm periods and erodes out all the sediment and erodes back into the granite. And then during the cold periods where the sea level is lower, it becomes a huge receptacle, what we call a capture point for sediment to accumulate. Some of that sediment is eroding off the edges of the granite cliffs, but the exciting thing for us is when things get really cold and the sea level is really low and gets exposed, you get prevailing northerly winds whipping up fine-grained sediment off the exposed landscape of Britain and Northern Europe and Doggerland, blowing it up into the air and it falls down as dust that we call lurs. It's just fine, dusty, dusty sediment. Now in parts of the world, this can be tens of meters thick. In Eastern Europe, it can be you know, easily in excess of 20 meters thick. In Jersey, it's five meters thick, and it preserves all of the different uh, warm periods and cold periods, and it's going in. Jersey is granite, and granite gives rise to acidic sediments, which dissolve rock, but the lurse is calcareous, and that means it can preserve bone. So where we get the lurse, we get bone preserved. So when did people start clocking on? Did they start realising
0: that, hang on, we've got a really important prehistoric site right here?
3: Hmm. Well, it's important to like contextualise that with when did science realise we had prehistoric artefacts? And, you know, the... <laughs> Plenty of indications before, but the ground zero for that discovery is 1859 and Joseph Presswich and John Evans going and seeing Boucher de Perth's finds in northern France. 1859, same year that Darwin's Origin of Species is published. Massive paradigm shift. Once stone artefacts have been recognised as having antiquity and belonging to extinct forms of humans, the scientific community, Europe and further afield, starts looking for these artefacts. Now we know two years after that, two 16-year-old boys, Samuel Dancaster and Joseph Sinel, two Jersey boys, discovered at another cave called La cote on the north of the island, flint artifacts. They didn't recognize them as artifacts. They recognized there was flint there. And flint doesn't belong in Jersey. The nearest flint is either found on the seabed or it's found in France. Obviously it made a bit of an impression, but... By the time they became men (laughs) and grown-ups, of course, the scientific community knew that these flint artefacts had significance. And Samuel Dancaster was reminded of what they'd found at Le Chèvre when he was exploring Le Cote de Saint-Brillard in 1881 and discovered stone artefacts eroding out there. At that point in time, the entire ravine system was full up with sediment, and these artefacts were just eroding out. So that was the point of discovery, but of course in that discovery they had the realisation what they were seeing at Le Chèvre 20 years before was also artefacts. So in some ways, two Neanderthal cave sites were discovered on the same day in 1881, that realisation.
0: And then over the course of the 20th century and early 21st century, more and more archaeological work I'm guessing occurred at the site again and again and again, revealing more of this site's importance
3: for ultimately what we now know as the Neanderthals. Yeah, it's a huge site, and it's been excavated for a long period of time. Yeah, excavations in the 1910s, the 1930s, and then um, big excavations after the war by a Jesuit father called Christian Bordeaux, And then Charles McBurney, Professor McBurney of Cambridge, a big season campaign of excavations from 1961 to 1978. A few little investigations in 1982 by Paul Callow and then nothing until 2010. And we start in 2010, but it's that realisation that we are just the latest chapter in this story that goes back to 1881. These groups of researchers who are coming in different ways in different times, each telling their bit of the story with the techniques that they have, with the resources they have. We are not gonna finish this job. But I think we have the very conscious realization there will be others coming after us. This will continue on. You could continue digging the site for another couple of hundred years. The reason I wanted to cover all of that first of all
0: was all about the original almost interpretation of what Lacotte was mm. because what was this original interpretation pre 2010
3: as to what this site was, what it was used for? these Neanderthals? Well, of course, that changed a little bit through the 20th century. But if we look at the first serious campaign carried out by a learned society that's based in Jersey 150 years ago, it was formed in 1873. They carried out what they considered to be scientific excavations at the time. They were using quarrymen to remove the first sediment. I mentioned the arch that now sits as this big exposed uh, structure. But at that point, the arch was completely full of sediment. At that point, the interpretation was quite simple. They thought they had a cave. And they thought that in the cave, when they came across combusted material, charcoal and burnt bone with stone artefacts, they had the habitation site of what they would have called back then prehistoric man. They then, in 2010, found teeth, 13 teeth in one little area. And those teeth were taken to London and they were looked at in London by um, Arthur Keith and others, the same little scientific group that at the same time were about to be looking at the Piltdown material. So, you know, there's a lot of crossover there. And it's an important story because Jersey has these scientific networks with France and Britain. And it was clearly identified as these teeth are having Neanderthal affinities at that point in time. So Neanderthal anatomical remains were well studied and been known for, you know, uh, 50 years or more at that point in time. So it's quite clear the distinctive roots of these teeth looked Neanderthal. In fact, it was at that moment that they suggested giving the name taurodontism to the the root structure, these big, chunky, fused roots. So the Lacotte teeth played a part in describing part of the anatomy of Neanderthal people. So at that point it was clear, Neanderthal people were living there, they were making fires, there were two occupation levels. It was considered to be relatively simple. It was a cave site and maybe they were burying their dead there as well. If we move forward later in time, the full size of the site becomes apparent. The fact that it isn't just under the arch, the rest of the ravine system has archaeology. In fact, under the arch itself, it goes down another 10 metres. Wow. And the key moment for us really is 1939 and a geologist called Frederick Zeuner, who was effectively a refugee from Germany. He left Germany and he got refuge within the scientific community in London and Britain. And he was studying sea level change. And Le Cot was a great place to go there. They had beach material. There's raised beaches in Jersey. He spent a day just digging a couple of test pits in one corner of the site whilst the Societe were digging in another part. And he said, You know, you've got a lower level here. And it's also got archaeology in. And when they looked at it, the artifacts were different, of a different character, and they realized there was an entire different suite of deposits. They were about to dig it, and then the following year, the Germans invaded. And of course, Jersey has this occupation by the Nazis and absolutely stops any research happening at all. By the time the islands are liberated, Two of the three main leaders of the original excavations are sadly dead, and the excavations continue on in that place that Frederick Zoyner pointed them to go. And that's where the story of the late 20th century and Charles McBurney's excavations begin and we find an older set of deposits, deeper in time, that changes our understanding of how the site was used. And what is that new understanding? Is this when we do get to the game driving theory? Yeah, so it, the game drives are definitely part of that. Um, this is where we get into a set of older deposits. The little cave occupation that they discovered in 1911 probably dates to the last maybe 20 or 30,000 years of Neanderthal time on this planet. So maybe somewhere from 70, 80,000 years ago through to 40,000 years ago. These older deposits are older than 120,000. So it's an entire different cold stage. It's an entire different world in terms of Neanderthal evolution. And what you have there is 10 further occupation levels with some hiatuses. Most of the time, it's just mass occupation, mass discard of artifacts. Maybe up to 40,000 were found in the later deposits. It's over 100,000 artifacts, and it's just a mass. And amongst it, two layers maybe three, but it didn't preserve very well, but definitely two layers in which large heaps of mammoth and woolly rhinoceros bone were found. But it's important before we talk about the bone heaps that they are only two of eight to 10 different levels. So they are particular behaviors that occur at two separate points in time where bone is accumulated. So is
0: that something also very important to stress with Lacot's site, that almost giving it one function over these many, many, well, one hundred of 100,000 years of prehistory is incorrect because you have all of those different occupational layers. And so at different times, this place that people are coming back to
3: again and again and yeah. again could be used for different purposes. Absolutely. And that is the way you conceptually have to think about it. You have to think about it as a whole series of stacked, if you like, sites. The term site is quite problematic anyway, but occupation episodes, periods of settlement, across a very big time span with gaps in between, every one of a slightly different character. You can trace trends through it. You can trace, you know, long-term changes over time. But we have to first deal with each layer, each geological unit, separate point in time, separate population, separate series of functions, and then tell the story by stacking those one on the other. It's the same for many Paleolithic sites, especially where they occur in capture points like caves. You can point to other sites like in China's or in the south of France, Arago, the incredible complex um, at Atapuerca, all of the different capture points and all of the different levels are each an individual site. It's all or nothing sometimes in the Paleolithic. You can look for ages and not find anything in a landscape, but then you find one of these capture points and it's all there
2: i'm james patton rogers a war historian advisor to the un and nato and host of the warfare podcast from history hit join me twice a week every week as we look at the conflicts that have defined our past and the ones shaping our future we talk to award-winning journalists ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to know very well in the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. We hear from the people who were actually there. The Sudanese have been incredible. They have managed to get supplies to people, to individuals who are suffering. And we learn from the remarkable historians shining a light on forgotten histories. For the most part, the millions of people who were taken to those camps were immediately murdered. Auschwitz combined the functions of death camp and concentration camp and slave labour. Join us on the Warfare Podcast from History
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I'm Afua Hirsch.
2: I'm Peter Frankopan.
1: And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history.
2: This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra.
1: An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries.
2: But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today.
1: I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon.
0: So let's delve into the type of artefacts that we've found, that you and your team, not we, that you and your team and everyone <laughs> has found. I have absolutely no role in this whatsoever. But if we go back to the beginning of those 200,000 years of Neanderthal occupation, what are some of the earliest artefacts that you've been able to date that seem to come from this
3: earliest time? Mm. So it's important to always think when you're thinking about the artefacts to think about the landscape and think about the context. Mm. And what we know at the beginning of the sequence is it's relatively warm, the sea isn't particularly far away from the sequence at the time, and we can imagine quite a forested sort of environment. Sea level is low and Lacotte is sitting there on the edge of rolling plains and river valleys. At the bottom, in the earlier sequences, we find abundant artifacts dominated by flint. Now, Flint is this incredible resource that's very abundant in places where there's chalk and calcareous rocks and the Cretaceous period. But actually out there in the Western approaches of the English Channel, where the coast of Normandy and the coast of Brittany is largely metamorphic and igneous rocks, there's not much flint. So where's the flint coming from? Well, it's probably coming from the beds of rivers that are flowing out from France that can be accessed. And it's being brought to the site. There might be an outcrop near to Guernsey as well that maybe appears during periods of low sea level. So they're bringing in abundant flint into the site and they're making tools for processing organic material. That's all we can say. They're bringing in lots of flint and they're making tools that are notched to create little concave sort of scraping edges and tools we call denticulates, which, you know, have lots and lots of these little notches on their edge. Brilliant for shredding maybe plant resources, brilliant for maybe taking meat off the bones of animals. So they're bringing resources there and they're processing with these flint tools. And of course, Neanderthal people, as we know from other sites where you're getting rare glimpses of the preservation, would have had a toolkit that extended into all sorts of organic materials. The clothing they would have been wearing, containers they probably would have been carrying things in, spear shafts made out of wood. None of that survives at most archeological sites. Stone artefacts are so incredibly durable, we have to see all of these processes through the lens of the stone artefacts themselves. We have to mine each of those artefacts as a bit of data in itself, what it can tell us about technology, what it can tell us about activities like subsistence. And what it tells us is the site is a place not at the beginning for primary butchery, there's not lots of knives, there's lots of processing tools. So they're either bringing in bits of carcasses to to remove the last bits of meat and uh, do things like extract marrow, almost certainly doing that, but also probably bringing in other organic material. And they're doing this in a relatively warm, benign environment, Neanderthal people in fully temperate conditions, getting access to great flint. They seem in complete command of their environment. So that's how the story begins, but this is an interglacial, a long time ago, and then of course the climate begins to deteriorate, sea level gets even lower as the planet becomes colder and the landscape becomes more open. And at that point we start to see some changes in the stone artefacts.
0: Okay, therefore
3: yeah, you've
0: given us the teaser
3: there, Matt, the teaser. so I've got to ask therefore, <laughs> what are these other artefacts that we now start to see in the archaeological record? Well, as it starts to get colder, A couple of things happen you know in some ways as the sea level gets down they've got more access to landscape and more access to raw material but there isn't much more flint out there to be discovered but so as time goes on we find Other raw materials coming in so they're making tools on other good pieces of stone other than flint and they're bringing them all in from from the landscape and we start to see those notches and denticulates move over to lots more scrapers now these are really chunky flakes with specially prepared edges that aren't particularly sharp but they have very smooth edges and they're quite steeply backed so, they're great for processing a material very efficiently without damaging it. Now, we haven't got useware from these tools. They've been too stained by the sediment to give us a really clear indication what they're being used for. Our assumption is there's a lot of things like processing hides and skins going on, which is a bit of a change in emphasis from maybe processing vegetable remains, processing you know uh, plant foods, lots of hide preparation. We also start to get some large cutting tools coming in. Now, large cutting tools is our kind of a technical term for something we colloquially call hand axes. These are bifacially worked tools that sit in the hand and they're very good at cutting. They are knives. Yeah, that's what a cutting tool is. <laughs> It's strange that we don't see them at all in the earlier levels They're probably in their toolkit. They're probably capable of making them, but the people who are coming later are making them. So we see a lot of primary evidence for primary processing and cutting of meat continuing. At this point, when things start getting really cold, that the occupations start becoming a bit more sporadic. There's points where it gets so cold, they're leaving and then they come back. So it's within two of these levels where we find big accumulations of bone. Bone is there all the time, but we find two levels where we have large, big heaps of bone forming alongside the toolkit that in the first bone heap, has lots of really small cutting tools made on tiny flakes and then the upper bone heap has a lot more kind of imported lovely finished tools that are coming in probably at a distance from where they have access to flint sources. So they're using the site in a very particular way in these two places and over the years there's been discussions about what those bone heaps mean. They're very provocative, they require an explanation and at the moment I don't think we've got agreement on that. Well. These bones, mm. you see these bone heaps, That they're always bones, but you have these massive bone heaps at those times. To what creatures do these bones belong to? So yeah, in the two bone heaps, the predominant animal in both bone heaps is woolly mammoth, right. so mammuthus primogenius. And alongside it, there is also the bones of woolly rhinoceros as well. There's a little bit of horse, there's a little bit of bear, there's a little bit of arctic fox, but this is incidental. The main bulk of this is woolly mammoth and woolly rhinoceros. So megafauna, extinct megafauna. Large bone elements in the lower bone heap, lots of mammoth skulls. Nine mammoth skulls make its way into to the bone heaps, the pelvises of mammoths and their tusks, mammoth ribs. In the upper bone heap, less skulls, but we've got you know, plenty of pelvises, lots of shoulder blades, and on the top of the upper bone heap, three. Woolly rhinoceros skulls appear to have been placed. So these are big bone elements. The mammoths themselves are relatively small. You know, not standing much more than two meters at head height. You know, and that's the that's the adult. So there's a reason why they're probably becoming smaller. Maybe it's resources. Maybe it's uh, overpredation. Maybe it's being on an island. But still, notwithstanding, these would have been extremely distinctive and impressive sculptures made out of the bone of megafauna. So
0: that's interesting. So it is not just the discarded remains of a mammoth once it, they've been done with the butchering. There's careful almost crafting of those skulls afterwards. So is, maybe this is too much of a stretch, but if it's crafting, do they almost see this as a, some kind of artwork almost? Could it, that potentially be
3: a reason? Artwork is a stretch, but the fact that the piling up of these bone elements appears to be very careful appears to be very structured, means that we can't see them as just piles of refuse. Something else is going on there. Now, to tell this story, we need to go back to the original excavations that were carried out in, well, it was the 60s to 70s campaign, but the main focus being the 70s. And under Charles McBurney, Kate Scott. brilliant amazing faunal specialist we're still lucky enough to work with today as a faunal specialist she took control of the recording of these bone heaps the lifting i said the lurse preserves bone it doesn't preserve it brilliantly so every single bone needed to be jacketed in plaster of paris and lifted so she never got to see the bone heaps in their entirety it wasn't as if you could just dust off this lurse and leave behind the gleaming parts. Everything needed to be recorded. The enormity of them, the structure of them revealed itself in post excavation. Kate picked up some really interesting things about the way the bone heaps were formed. So if we think of the lower bone heap from a layer we call unit A, it was dominated by skulls, far more mammoth skulls than you got in the upper bone heap. The skulls seem to be placed on the outside of the heap. In one case, two ribs had been placed upright alongside the skull, resting against the skull. So you can imagine mammoth skull on the ground, two big mammoth ribs sticking up to the sky, Uh, similar placement of tusks. And one crazy bit where a mammoth skull had already been sort of prepared, maybe to remove its brain to eat by having the top removed off, placed on the ground, and then a rib driven through the skull into the ground below. So sort of being anchored by this skull. So if you imagine that, if the thing had just been finished and you're looking at it, you're seeing a big pile of bone, but lots of strange structuring going on and lots of elements pointing towards the sky. In the upper bone heap, she found less of the mammoth skulls, less of the rib placements, but in one place, lots and lots of Woody rhino shoulder blades stacked on top of each other crossways creating this pile of shoulder blades and then, of course, the three woolly mammoth skulls on the top of the bone pile. So her interpretation, and it's a really good interpretation, is that these represent two episodes in which Neanderthal people were working cooperatively and driving herds of mammoth off the cliffs to their death in the ravine. The woolly rhinoceroses maybe got caught up in the stampede that would have happened. And then when these animals die, they're butchered, they're extensively processed, and then the bone elements are stacked. And that structuring within her hypothesis just takes place as they're butchering, as they're piling this material up. There's really good reasons why we should take Kate's hypothesis very seriously. First of all, all those skulls are there. Now, normally when people are bringing back meat to a home base, We imagine that Lacotte is functioning pretty much as a home base, at least for some of the year. You bring back what you can carry. You bring back the main meat-bearing parts of the animal, or you just bring back the meat. You're not carrying mammoth skulls any great big distance. And also things like the vertebrae are there, you know, again see these strip the meat off the vertebrae, you don't need to bring it back. So it looks like a prime, what we call a primary butchery signature. They're butchering where they killed it, and similar to a degree for the the upper bone heap. Where we looking at it afresh, what sort of 30 years later, you know, put forward another hypothesis, we raised the following questions. First of all, the headland is not great for a stampede. It's not just a flat plateau it's got little ravines within it, and it's got big rocky outcrop just before the main plunge that would split a herd. But anyway, maybe the herd did split and get went to its death, it's not a big change. Secondly, within these two levels, there aren't the big large cutting tools in any kind of number that we would expect that you would need to say butcher 11 mammoth. Secondly, if you've got 11 mammoth there, Why are you butchering them down to such an extensive forensic level that you're removing every bit of meat, pretty much, and smashing open long bones to get at the marrow? In Neanderthal groups, we envisage of being sort of extended family size, maybe 40 or 50 individuals. So, you know, 11 mammoth is a lot of meat to extensively process. And we also see that the landscape immediately around it is very, very good for hunting. So we just proposed an alternative hypothesis. We've got no way of knowing whether we're right or, or Kate's wrong. It's just alternative. That in fact, what we have here is accumulations of bones that occurred over time from multiple hunting episodes in the relatively near vicinity of the cave being brought back in. And gradually over time, these bone heaps being made. Myself and Clive Gamble recently writing on this, think about it and describe it, you know, as kind of a collective project, something that a group is engaging in. There's rules, there's kind of grammar there. There's, uh, you're leaving behind something that's kind of monumental and arresting, but there's not necessarily a reason for it. You know, there doesn't necessarily need to be ritualization or particularly formalized symbolics going on here, and we don't need to call it art. But these are humans leaving behind a very, very arresting structure in their landscape.
0: It's fascinating to picture Lacotte as potentially being this Neanderthal home base, isn't mm. it? And if it is that, as you said, there's the theory that you and your team have proposed and also this other theory, which there's this very credible reasoning behind both. If it is some sort of home base with people coming there over many, many generations of Neanderthal groups, what, other sorts of artifacts do we find? My mind is instantly thinking fire, fire making. Do you have any evidence of like burnt ground that might suggest deliberate fire of a
3: potential hearth again and again and again? Mm. That's the thing about the levels where there is burning. The two bone heap layers have very little evidence for burning at all so at the points they're forming there doesn't seem to be much burning going on in that part of the cave at all which again suggests something strange but most of the other levels have abundant evidence for burning not as discrete hearts but as entire spreads of burnt charcoal but mainly burnt bone so for these levels temperatures cold there's not much wood in the landscape what are they burning they're burning bone now if you're going to be burning bone you've got to be collecting it. It's not just going to be what you're consuming. That's not going to be enough as a fuel stockpile. So we think they must be bringing bone in as a fuel. And if the landscape around there is being used regularly for hunting, you can imagine what you leave from a mammoth carcass. There's going to be a lot there, but over a few months or a year, as scavengers take everything else, eventually going to strip it. And that landscape is going to have these like shipwrecks of, of mammoth, which are being pretty stripped And then you can take what's left back, break it up and burn it. So you end up with layers there that just look like cat litter. And that cat litter is combusted bone, huge amounts of it, so much so that it's forming the very geological deposit the artifacts are preserved in. So the fact we're not getting discrete halves is probably down to one or two things. Either the cold temperature conditions which are creating freezing and thawing in the sediments are kind of dispersing them or they're kind of dispersing their own halves and disturbing their own halves themselves because of the abundance but it would create a great well-drained substrate to live on all this burnt bone absolutely i can ask so many questions
0: but we'll keep moving on if we go to let's say the later neanderthals Mm -hmm. at the site so let's say roughly within the last one hundred thousand years what sorts of artefacts are we finding from these later occupational layers and is there much difference between the
3: earlier occupational layers? Mm. The differences are not hugely remarkable, they're not a leap in terms of, of technology. We're still dealing with what we call a basic Middle Paleolithic toolkit. So. We are seeing everything made at that point on cores, which have been carefully prepared to remove these blanks that we went through a technique we call the Valois technique, where you remove a blank of a predetermined size and shape. So at that point, they have a, a very sophisticated way of working the cores to produce products that are very, very useful. But what we do see in the later deposits is far more use of that technique and far more I said originally flint was kind of declining through the older deposits. Well, flint comes back with a bang. They're getting access to good quality flint. They're bringing it in in large amounts. They're making a range of processing tools, the scrapers, the denticulates, and uh, the notches, and they are making projectile points as well. We see clear projectile points. So they're making using the Levallois technique pointed tips that they could haft and use as spears. Now, we know from Normandy and from Brittany, there's caves and, and uh, other sites of the same age with very similar technology. So we know this technology is being shared within the entire region. But Lacot is pulling them back. We've got at least two episodes there in the later period. We don't know their dates yet, but we're pretty sure one is less than 47,000 years ago. So we're getting to the end of when Neanderthal people are on the planet. What we don't see is any innovation to what we call initial Upper Paleolithic deposits. We're not finding small backed bladelets. We're not finding composite toolkits where you might make an armature using lots of different flint elements. It's really classic Middle Paleolithic archeology. span There's a little link, you know, these populations are separated in time by tens of thousands of years. But at Le Cote, because they are on the edge of where they can get access to good flint, their stuff imported, they make use of local raw materials, but they've got a trick, and this is a trick about recycling flakes, taking the little bits of discarded waste material that on another site might not be used at all, and using them as little cutting tools and taking resharpening flakes off the edge to make that little flake that you're holding even sharper. Now, you don't really find that in most of Middle Paleolithic Europe. You do find it at Le Cot, and you find it again and again as they almost rediscover the same recycling tips to extend their range, extend the use of flint. It's a constant preoccupation to them. How can we keep reusing these tools? The great wealth and diversity of artifacts that you've discovered so far at Le Cot,
0: it's It is such an extraordinary site. It's almost like the jewel in the crown of Neanderthal archaeology in Jersey, in Northwest Europe. I mean, how many artifacts have been discovered so far and how
3: much is there still to do? Yeah. Yeah. The McBurney excavations found over 100,000 artifacts altogether, and that's artifacts you know, greater than a centimetre in size. Smaller stuff was just sort of uh, packaged up. We think in the 1910s, 40,000 artifacts were found. Unfortunately, only about 10% of those remain. They were lost um, during the war, a lo- along with a lot of records. And then you know a similar amount was found by Birdo in the 1950s. So let's say we've got 200,000 artifacts. All currently curated by Jersey Heritage, kept in Jersey Museum and available for study. Only about 40% of the sediment that was originally there has been excavated. So there is a location that we know of where you know, there are still hundreds of thousands of artefacts in situ within their geological context, waiting to be discovered. There are more known Middle Paleolithic artefacts from Lacotte St Brilard than the rest of the British Isles put together. You know, these are superlatives, you know, but it's really down to the persistence of that place, the fact that the granite keeps it so safe, and the fact that, as we said at the beginning, Neanderthal people keep on coming back to it. They keep on coming back and back. And I feel as
0: we wrap up now, one other thing to mention Lacoste, it's, it's this amazing place for it, but Jersey as an island, as an Ice Age island almost has not just one Neanderthal site, there are many others, and you are learning,
3: you and your team are learning more about these sites, more and more about them every year. Yeah, so we began the project in 2010, and it was a project to look at the entire prehistory of the island, with Lakot just being part of it. We have the cave that I just described at the beginning, Lakote la Chev, on the north coast. That's currently being studied by Dr. JC Mills of our team, who is, is working on that. The Upper Paleolithic site of Le Varine, being led by Chantal Canella and Ed Blinkhorn, but then lots and lots of other fine spots around the island, which we are investigating one by one and trying to understand. The island is undergoing, you know, rapid transformation with every tide. Every high tide brings erosion. The whole focus at Lacotte at the moment is to protect it from erosion with Jersey Heritage investing hugely in protecting the site Now our ongoing excavations about stabilising the site. Now all that incredible investment is going in to protect Lacotte, but the rest of the island is wild and the rest of the island is undergoing erosion and that allows for discovery. So what we're finding now around the coast is there are lots of locations where under the beach just on the edge of the sea at low tide there are ice age deposits exposed and those Ice Age deposits contain Ice Age artefacts, almost exclusively Middle Paleolithic. So you have a preserved entire Ice Age landscape. It's important for us because when Becky Scott published the non-game drive hypothesis, we suggested it was that landscape out there that was where the hunting was taking place, that was being used. The stuff was just coming back to Le We didn't think we'd be able to test it particularly because it was all under the sea. But our recognition now... That at low tide you can just walk through that landscape is now offering us a chance to go and test that hypothesis that the hunting grounds are out there beneath the sea and Lacotte is the place that everything is coming back to.
0: And so, Matt, what are you and your team looking
3: at now at Lacotte? What's the plan ahead? plan ahead at the moment is we're just bringing to a close all the publication of our recent research with a book coming out next month. We're going back into the field at Lacotte in July through Jersey Heritage funded excavations aimed to investigate a new part of the site that's never been looked at before, the West Ravine, see what's there and protect it from the sea. But really it was um, the publication of the, the paper showing that the Neanderthal teeth have shared ancestry, have features of both Homo sapiens and Neanderthal people that is really setting up our new research questions. So Matt Skinner and Tim Compton have done this amazing analysis of the teeth, showed that they're not classic Neanderthal at all. We know roughly their age, less than 47,000 years, so they're right at the end. So we've got to go back to the site, back to the archives, back to scientifically working on all of the fauna found with it to get as much as we can out of the archive to understand this unique population of humans from Jersey.
0: So this is fascinating. This is that time period when homo sapiens are living
3: at the same time as Neanderthal people in this part of the world. It's a really fascinating period of prehistory. It is and it's getting more and more fascinating. We just found out recently from further south in France that there's an incursion of homo sapiens around 52,000 years ago. It's a complex story, and we're only really just getting a grip on how complex the interaction between Neanderthal people and Homo sapien people really was. Well, Matt, good luck with all
0: of that. This has been fantastic, and that book, as you mentioned, is coming out next month. It just goes for me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Well, there you go. There was Dr Matt Pope talking all things Neanderthals and Jersey's incredible Ice Age archaeology, particularly highlighting the site of La Cote de Saint-Brelard. If ever you do get the chance, do visit Jersey, do see its incredible sites, and have a look at this archaeology that is being uncovered. It is revealing more about Neanderthals in this area of the world and how important this part of Western Europe was for these communities living tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of years ago. Anyway, last things from me, you know what I'm going to say, but if you have been enjoying The Ancients recently and you want to help us out, well, you know what you can do. You can leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us as we continue to grow the podcast and to share these amazing stories from our distant past with you and with as many people as possible. That is our infinite mission. That is why we continue to do this week in, week out, and we love putting the work and effort in. But that's enough from me, and I will see you in the next episode.